You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. Today, my guest is Dr. Leanne Griffith. She's a dean at St. Mary's University in London. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What is your role at the university? Yeah, thanks. So I'm Dean of Faculty for the Faculty of Sport, Technology and Health Sciences. So St Mary's as a university in London is well known for its its sporting background and it's got a a good reputation in sport. We run programmes in sport and exercise science, strength conditioning and performance analysis and have a collaboration with Chelsea Football Club which I know you're a fan of now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so football is obviously a sport in England is it's important to us and we teach our students by learning through applied practice and clinical practice. We are also quite strong in the field of allied health. So we have a physio programme where students use sport as well as a mechanism to gain experience in their physio training as well as in the NHS, which is our National Health Service, and private practices that we have locally to us in Twickenham. I oversee and manage all the academic programmes, the research and the consultancy work that that happens in the university. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a village in Suffolk, which is north of London, I have to say. It was a man that brought me to London in 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 the long term, so that's why I ended up away from here, away from my family, but near Cambridge in Suffolk, a small sleepy village. It was yeah, pretty standard upbringing really. My parents were quite into sport, which I think is where I've got my drive for sport from. And I have to say, I'm not a brilliant performer. I'm a recreational sport. <laughs> I run, I do various sports, but not in any kind of performance level. So what was the motivation then to take sports science seriously? So for me, it came through my study of physiotherapy, more more than my love for sport. So I trained as a physiotherapist at Keele University in Staffordshire in the UK. And through that experience, gained lots of different lots of different experience in both neurological patients so patients who'd had strokes spinal cord injuries and I worked with children as well quite a lot but my work took me to to sport a lot of my friends and colleagues were working in the British superbike racing in triathlon especially so working with runners predominantly looking at biomechanical injuries and it's mostly through my physiotherapy that led me into sports as as a career. I then got a role at St. Mary's and then found myself where I am today. So today we are going to talk about the intersection of sports, living well and dying well. Uh, from yeah. your perspective, where is that intersection? That's a really good question. Um, and it's quite a fascinating question because I think you could ask that to lots of different people and it could be answered in a completely different way, (laughs) um, which is partly why I absolutely love it, if I'm honest. So for me, um, I think there's two links. There's a recreational link, which I would say is focused around well-being, mental health, 
and using sport as a driver to to really encourage somebody to take self-care seriously to feel better in themselves uh, you hear people talking of endorphins as happy hormones where people feel better if they're just moving and that doesn't have to be high intensity exercise by any way stretch or form it could be that that could just be yoga it could be pilates it could be going for a walk and then on the other end of the spectrum you've got sport as a as a means of performance of improvement an area for passion determination and drive and pulling all of that together where you're then have motivation and passion to succeed in sport which then feeds into the rest of your your personality really yeah so i understand that the university you're having the living well project could you talk to us about that yeah i can um it's something that's that's growing and establishing at the university so it kind of started off when i say about a i'm not a performance sports person at all <laughs> and thinking about sport for well-being and mental health it was in the lockdown year so around 2020 or just after lockdown it was actually that a friend and i decided that we need to do something to to help us kind of have a better balance between life juggle all the life admin comes in all the the emails the communications whatever it is that might be so we decided uh, very long story short that we were going to walk one mile a day for a year and we did it and we used that space to really talk about what kind of ponder life's wider kind of discussions and we ended up coming up with the idea of a living well service so what does it mean to live well and like because you can get by each day and you do that and everybody can kind of progress for a day but actually how do you do that in a way that really benefits yourself and others around you that you that you love and admire and some of those principles we've taken for a charity that I run called Sophie Stars, which is a cancer support charity, but other principles we're taking into a living well service, which is run through the university. So the living well service is looking at how we as an institution and the students that we produce, so mostly our physiotherapy students, how can they benefit the community locally to us? That might be through putting on exercise classes, uh, nutritional advice and information, creating creating groups and discussion forums and different activities that the community say they want that we can then provide for them. And it benefits everybody, really. So it benefits the, the community because they're having someone facilitate something that they want. Um, it's helping to combat things like loneliness which is which is especially predominant post-COVID. It became kind of a, a real pandemic in my eyes, the loneliness that especially older people were suffering from. But it's also helping our students and it's gaining them valuable experience about how they can go out and the skills that we teach them at university can really benefit um, the local community. So how is the community responding to this invitation? Well, wow, really interesting. Yeah, um, really positively. So we've we've been holding some focus groups with lots of organisations and charities local to us, asking them what they want, working with carers especially as well. So bringing in people's carers to support them as well as the patients. 
And when you've got um, conditions such as dementia or Alzheimer's, anything like that, that have a care attached to them a lot of the time, again, that can be quite a lonely place. And the forums that we're organising help to, to combat that loneliness and support them and the people around the patient. So it's it's been a really positive response so far. We are probably 90% way through kind of putting together some of the materials that we're going to be using, resources and education and workshops, that kind of thing. Um, we've had a few projects that have launched where we've been doing things like hand, hand clinics, yoga sessions, community coffee groups. We've had a carer's well-being session where we invite people to the university and we give them massages and facials and we drink tea and have biscuits and um, all the things that we enjoy doing. It looks like, you know, you have this passion uh, to care for the other. You know, where mm -hmm. does that come from? Was that modeled for you as from childhood? Interesting question. For me personally, I think it comes through experience. I think everybody will have a different story and a different answer to that question. Mine comes through personal experience. So my my sister died six years ago now. And I my way, I think, of dealing with the grief and the trauma we experienced through that is by giving back to others and trying to help people who I can relate to and I can see that would be in a situation that would be difficult and they might be struggling with. So for me, it's, it's more experience. I guess I've always had that in me. It's just been brought out during my recent life experiences for me wanting to give back to others now. Why has your sister's death awakened this so much in you? It's a good question. And one I, I don't know if I really know the answer to, if I'm honest. And I think that's okay. I think that can mean something different on different days to me. So, as I said before, I think it's my way of dealing with the situation. Yeah. Um, I could see the struggles that I had and that my sister had during her illness. Um, so she died of cancer. Um, and I could see that there were gaps and I could see people struggling in different ways that I don't think is talked about enough. I don't think it's highlighted and I think it becomes a bit of a taboo topic. So I'm just trying to combat that and make it easier for people to navigate that that path. You know, life-changing events have a way of helping us to reorient our lives and you're doing an yeah. amazing work in helping the community to live well. What are some of the barriers to people living well through sports and exercise? Yeah, good question. Um, and there, there are loads of them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so through um, through the focus groups that we're running, and also through, we have a research centre at St Mary's University, The Art of Dying Well, which I'm sure you've heard of. They've done some amazing work and research into what dying well means. And what we're really picking up with, uh, with Maggie and her team who work in that research centre is how does living well then proceed into dying well when someone's coming towards the end of their life? And initial thoughts are that there's there's a huge correlation between the two. So if you live well and if you're happy in, in how you are at that stage, actually you're much calmer, much more focused and understanding when it comes to dying well, which is something that is really important to, to get right, really. So 
that team and the group of the, the team that I'm working with in our local community see sport and well-being as as a way of doing that um obviously there are barriers because you say sport and it immediately puts a huge group of people off because they think <laughs> oh, well, I have to get in my gym kit I'm going to get all sweaty I don't have time for this I don't have the energy for this but actually when you educate people on what you mean by that um and we're being quite careful with the way that we're wording it in terms of you might use words like movement workshops, coordination workshops, mindfulness activities, which involves some exercise. But I'm not going to be asking people to get on a bike and on an exercise bike and bike as hard as they can for half an hour. So that's kind of the first major barrier is people understanding what we mean. Then obviously access becomes one of our main barriers that we've kind of hit at the moment especially with an older population if you're looking at working with a frail older population and you're looking to use movement and sport as a way of integrating living well we're finding that we have to go out to the community so we're going to be working with local churches and organizations and community groups because they have space, they have the ability and access where we can have a larger open space where we can bring people to it because it's the access needs that we've got getting people to them, which tends to be quite a big barrier at the moment. I work in end-of-life care and helping yeah. you know, people who are dying, but also people who are dealing with grief. Could you talk yeah. to us about the emotional benefits of movement? Because in most cases in that population, there's really a lot of depression. Yeah, there are so many benefits of movement and sport to grief. Um, grief, as I've experienced it, and I'm sure you've spoke to loads of people who are going through grief, yeah. is I feel like grief can get channeled up, can get completely blocked in someone, and then it's really hard to articulate what that feels like. By by moving, by talking about that grief, by having a community of people that you are connected to, is a way to to have some self-care, basically, to look after yourself. Yeah. And it might be that you don't have to talk about that because that's too difficult for some people. They don't want to talk about it, myself included. <laughs> so actually, movement and sport is a way of channeling those emotions and a way of clearing your head. And there's lots of science behind that. But as importantly, if not more importantly, there's lots of psychology behind it and there's lots of understanding about how that that can help to alleviate things like depression, things like low mood, um, by changing that hormone balance. Yeah. What you're speaking makes a lot of sense because there was a period in my life, I was 12 years old when I lost, I had significant losses of my parents. Mm-hmm. And there was a time where I went through severe depression and even suicidal ideation. And then somebody introduced me to soccer and, and gave me okay. a soccer ball. And then the moment I began to play, you know, and just run around and do some skills with the ball, in that moment I felt better. It really helped yeah. take me away from those bad emotions of deep depression and suicidal ideation. So movement is really powerful. It, it clears your mind, it clears your head, it really has those powerful emotional benefits. The more you play, the more you move, um, the lighter that becomes. With that, we'll take a little break. My guest is Dr. Leanne Griffiths. We'll be right back. 
Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Soleil Berman. We continue our conversation with Dr. Griffith. You're also the founder of Sophie Stars in honor of your sister. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. So Sophie Stars was established in 2017. And it's it's a very small charity because obviously I work at the university and this is something as I do as a little bit of a side hustle, if you like. Yeah. Um, but Sophie Stars is a charity that supports family and friends of people who have cancer specifically. So my sister was 25 when she passed away from kidney cancer. And what we realized during that process, it was it was quite a traumatic process for everybody. Her cancer was found really late. We, When she was diagnosed with cancer, she lived for about eight months after that. And when it was diagnosed, she didn't have traditional symptoms or signs or symptoms that we were expecting. So it wasn't diagnosed until late, at which point it had spread to multiple different organs throughout her body. And we knew that it was terminal when she was diagnosed. But during that process, we noticed that there was lots of support, especially in the UK, um, from charities around cancer. And she received lots of support from through to counselling, through to charities that provide experience days and various things to make the end of life as good as it can be. But what we did notice was, well, what I noticed was that after every appointment where, in our case, we were given bad news, we would come out of the appointment, I would be trying to process the news that I just heard about my sister and I was trying to comfort my sister and be her support mechanism whilst trying not to let her know how much it had upset me. Um, and I didn't feel like I could tell anybody about how I was feeling because, like, you know, I didn't have cancer. I was fine. So Sophie Stars was set up to to provide a support, a support mechanism for that person like me to enable that person to have someone there to um, to help them, to support them and to um, yeah have a place to rant and vent and tell all the different stories. Sophie must have been a very special girl. She was, yeah. She was my best friend. She was, um, yeah, she was quite an inspiration. Yeah. And her life continues through Sophie Stars. Looks like you're helping a lot of people. Because sometimes, like you said, when a family member is dealing with uh the concept, you know, with a life-threatening illness. Sometimes it's hard for the other healthy family members to even, you know, process because you feel guilty, you know, why my sister or my brother is dying, you know, why should I feel these feelings? And it's hard to yeah. reach out for support. So I'm glad that this opportunity is there. Do you find that people are reaching out uh, for support? Yes, yeah, they they absolutely are. In a different way to what we thought they would, I oh, have to how say. So? <laughs> yeah, it was it was interesting. So when I first um, spoke to my family about it, and we first set up the charity, we thought it was going to be support group based. So it might be coffee mornings or more support walks, 
that we would be conducting where there's a group of people that talk openly about their experiences. Um, However, people want one-to-one support. I think when you've got a situation where you're dealing with a loved one, family or a friend, you want to talk about them. And a support group didn't quite enable that to happen. So what we found that we're doing is offering one-to-one support. So we have what we call star workers. So they're people who have a lived experience of supporting someone else through cancer. And I connect people with a star worker and eventually connect people together so that we're creating kind of friendships and groups. So maybe the support will be build up eventually. Um, I don't know. But it's individual support is the main thing that we're doing. What we've also realized is some people don't want to talk. Like we've um, discussed in the first half of this podcast, actually talking is becomes quite challenging to some people. And some people don't always feel that they're able to air those emotions, especially when they're going through that situation right at that point in time. So there's two things that we've done, uh, well, two things that we're in the process of doing and just kind of starting one is an exercise class called Starfit for all the reasons that we've um, we've spoken about in this podcast so far is that movement and exercise is a great way to alleviate some of that stress, alleviate or kind of just release some of the emotion so that actually you can kind of do your exercise, take a deep breath and go back to the person that you love. And they've got your full energy and your full attention. Um, without having all that emotion attached to them. Um, And the second thing is um, a Sophie Smiles box. So Sophie Smiles box is a a kind of a care package, a box full of treats to for someone who has cancer to give to somebody who's supporting them to say thank you, to acknowledge um, the support they're giving, and for us just to acknowledge that cancer affects everyone. You don't have to have cancer for it to be able to affect you. Um, so, yeah, they're the things we're doing with Safety Stars at the moment. You're doing incredible work. Dealing with grief is hard. End of life care, it was what I really found when my sister um, died was I knew she was going to die. And lots of people who are dealing with end of life care, like you're obviously an expert in this. You deal with end of life care, you understand the process, you have experience of the process. But actually, when that person dies... You can't ever be prepared for how you're going to feel when that person dies. I knew Sophie was going to die for eight months. I understood and I learned about the dying process. I could see it happening in front of me. But when she was, she died in a hospice. When she came to it, I feel like, and I don't have the comparison here to, to exactly say it, but I feel like I was as shocked as I would have been had I didn't know she was dying. I don't feel like I was prepared even though I had time and all the resources to be prepared. Yeah. I just don't know if you can be prepared for that death, even though you've um, you've lived through it and you know it's coming. Yeah. You know, somebody might be listening to this and going through what you already went through. What helped mm. you to find a sense of balance? It was yoga. It For me, it was movement. It was exercise. It was the only way that I could process everything that was happening. Um, I have two two young children as well. Like I always think children are such a joy to bring into a situation. We could be with my, I remember in the, in the final weeks that my sister was alive, 
my two-year-old son was laying. She was paralysed, as I think I told you. So I had a hospital bed in my parents' um, downstairs of their house. And he was laying on the bed with her, um, pulling at various cords. And she was reading him a bedtime, bedtime story. And he had no idea what was going on. And it just lightened the mood. So it's using the people around you and and moving and having a little bit of time for yourself. It's not selfish. It's a necessity. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleil Behman. We continue our conversation with Dr. Griffiths. During the break, you spoke about a curriculum, that the possibility of a curriculum on death, dying, and living well. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. So through St. Mary's University and the Research Centre for the Art of Dying Well, we're looking at how we can talk about living well and therefore dying well with our students. So that's coming out with the Living Well service that we're doing, where they're actively engaging in activities that are going to produce that. But then taking that um, that process, that information back into the classroom. So how do you embed it into the curriculum? How do you talk about uh, what living well is and how you achieve it? How do you talk about and teach people what the normal dying process is? How does that look? Because we will all encounter dying, especially in that role as an allied health professional. And then how can you talk around it and be comfortable talking around dying? Because that's difficult for a lot of people. So we're really toying and thinking about how we can use those principles to help the workforce that's coming through our programmes so our graduates can go out into the working world to, um, to support people around them. Yeah. So you're bringing this curriculum because you're sensing there's a strong need around educating the community on death and dying. I'm a very small fish in a large pond, and there are some wonderful, amazing experts in this field, some of which are from America. I know there's a team <laughs> in Toronto that are working on this. There's a couple of universities in, in London Loughborough University do some work on it and there's an amazing um an amazing lady called Dr Catherine Mannix who has written a couple of books around the thoughts on this and what dying is and what the conversation around dying is so we're just starting this process now using a lot of resources that are already out there in the public domain to try and help educate professionals that are working in this field Dr. Griffith, what are your final thoughts? Oh, just it's been such a lovely conversation. So probably my final thoughts um, are that exercise is one of the most powerful tools to enable you to live well. It helps in so many different ways. And I would just, I'm trying to break the barriers of the word exercise and sport because they they are wonderful tools and everybody can access them 
Um, so please, please just keep moving. That was Dr. Leanne Griffith. You've been listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Our project manager is Melissa Caprellian. Our studio engineer is Brian McKenna. And I'm Sole Bama. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.